We met here for the purpose of worship, and certainly worship consists of a lot of things, not the least of which is prayer. So as was, <clears throat> as we did last week, let's go to the Lord in silent prayer. You think about uh, our country and what our needs are and what your personal needs are, and then uh, uh, lift them up to the Lord. So let us pray. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of coming and presenting our prayer request to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, by way of announcements, we will have at 6.30 on Wednesday our prayer meeting, and it will be followed at 7 o'clock by our Bible study in uh, the... uh, book of John, so feel free to come if you so choose. We are glad to have David Hammond with us today, our webmaster, who uh, takes care of not only our website, but also our podcast. So, And of course, he is my my proud son-in-law. So David, good to have you with us. Thank you so much for what you do. All right, now... Uh, since we've talked a little bit about announcements, that leads us to another aspect of worship called giving. And as you know, we do things a little different here. We don't tithe nor recommend that uh, uh, you sacrificially give. Uh, give because you're going to subscribe to the budget. Give because... Uh, you know, you want God to bless you, but just follow the scriptures. And uh, to do that, you have to either go to our Doctrine of Giving, which of course is on the uh, website, or uh, you can get the scripture out and read chapter uh, 8 and chapter 9 in Second Corinthians. Uh, 
Both of those chapters are devoted to New Testament giving. And they, of course, teach that uh, it's a grace matter. Sometimes God blesses you, sometimes God doesn't bless you. But in any case, if He has blessed you, then uh, that makes possible your giving. And there are two scriptures that I have provided on the board for you that I think to summarize New Testament giving. The first one is Second Corinthians eight twelve, which says, "If the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a man has, not according to what he does not have." So that tends to indicate that uh, the important thing is your attitude, your willingness. If you're willing and Maybe God hasn't blessed you. You can still give in the privacy of your mind. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, we have another verse that is a good summary verse. Verse 7. Every man according as he purpose in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. So even if God has blessed you, if you cannot be a cheerful giver, then you should not give. So that's... Uh, I think, very descriptive of grace in itself. And that's an aspect of worship. That is to say, giving. Uh, So feel free to uh, exercise your prerogatives as I'm going to lead us in a moment of silent prayer. And then I'm going to ask God's blessing upon both the gift and the giver. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of permitting us to live in this great country of ours. Thank you for the opportunity to come together and to worship. Now, I would ask a very special blessing upon both the gift and the giver. And I would also ask a blessing upon our worship service today. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, our music program today is going to be, again, from our our uh, little black box over there. And uh, we're going to have music, uh, if all works out like it's supposed to, entitled, Mary Did You Know? And that is an outstanding song with reference to the conjecture. What did Mary know about her son Jesus? So if you would, Kenneth, let's see what the box of chocolate provides for us.
Thank you, Emily, and thank you, Ethan, Ethan, wherever you are. All right, now let's go to our lesson. Uh, last week I taught in part, uh, actually part three of the doctrine of dispensations, and this morning we're going to go to part four. All right, uh, before we do, though, as is our custom, let's remember the application of 1 John 1, 9, as may or may not be necessary. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come and worship. Now guide us and direct us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, as you can see on your uh, lesson plan, we do have our dispensation chart again. And I think I'm going to put it on the board once more with a few marks that I know you'll real call. Since we have seen it, of course, under previous lessons as we attack this subject of dispensations, uh, you'll recall the, the marks and what they mean, and you can see each of the ages as uh, outlined on our chart. All right, uh, let's go now to the tribulation. We're going into the eschatological ages now, and our first eschatological age is the tribulation. Now just how short will the tribulation be and when will it occur? Well, it will begin, as you know, after the rapture of the church and continue for seven years. The prophecy should not have come as a shock to the disciples as the Old Testament contained many references uh, to this future time of great trauma, primarily, of course, for Israel. Uh, and again, remember, we will not be involved in the tribulation because we will, of course, be raptured. And that will begin, as you can see from our chart, to begin the tribulation. But the scriptures even speak of a time of Jacob's trouble, giving us indication it is for Israel, not the church. And it is uh, compared in scripture to a woman in childbirth. Now, in a vision... David was told of a 70-week period, literally 77s, that God would give the Jews to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to anoint the most holy place. And of course, that again is a reference to the seven years that God owes the Jew. That's a, a scripture in Daniel chapter 24 through 27, actually, uh, described. Uh, this coming period of time. It's the first indication uh, in the Old Testament of a tribulation period other than some very uh, minor mentionings elsewhere that uh, are a bit hidden, but ones that we have covered in the past. Now let's go to background information. The seven years are often described as 42 months are 1,260 days, or a time and a times and a half times. Uh, again, indicating, you know, half of that seven years is 1,260 days and 42 months, uh, and then also referred to 
somewhat cryptically as a time and times and a half times. So the event occurring in the tribulation will be the subject then of this particular doctrine. The prophecy could not come as a shock to the disciples, or should not have anyway. The Old Testament contained many references to the future time, again, as Jacob's distress, and it does compare it to a woman in childbirth. And we noted that in Jeremiah 30, verses 4 through 7, Ezekiel 20, 34 through 38, and Ezekiel 22, verses 19 through 22. And then I put it, put the Chuck Missler chart up again, which we have gone through in a great deal of detail. And if you want a lot of information, go to Pastor Merritt's study books and look at the doctrine of the 70th week. Now the question is, as we posed last week even, are you ready? Alright, we should not be overly concerned, however, about the timing of the events of eschatology. When that day and hour will take place, we cannot tell. Uh, what does matter, however, is are you ready? Are you ready to meet Him? You know, whenever He comes. And in this, the church age, we are to pray for the rapture and accept the fact that no man, no man knows the hour or the day of that blessed event. Signs are for the Jews and not for the church. Now certainly, the Jew can understand exactly when the second advent is going to occur because there's so many signs given plus it's actually seven years after the rapture of the church and uh, that's important to know now let's uh, look at first Thessalonians 414 for documentation it says for we if we believe that that Jesus died and rose again even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him in verses 15 through 17, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. In other words, those who have preceded us in death. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, again Paul referring to himself and those who are living with him on earth, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Again, that verse 17 is documentation of the fact that the rapture is imminent because Paul thought it was going to occur in his day. Then we. All right, as we earlier studied, Matthew provided the more details than did the other gospel writers, but particularly Mark. Paul also explained the events and imminence of the coming tribulation. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. This is an extremely key verse from an eschatological perspective because one, it's in the New Testament, and two, it is quite detailed by summarizing those things that have been mentioned in so many other Old Testament passages and in the book of the Revelations. Uh, a little bit of background. Uh, the church at Thessalonica was very, very uh, uh, concerned about the fact that they may be in the tribulation because one, somebody had told them they were, and number two, somebody had written them a letter telling them they were. And uh, in addition, they could just look around themselves and see 
there was so much tribulation uh, in Thessalonica, or as they say today, Thessaloniki. All right, now let's go to verse 1. Paul's going to speak to them about the question that they think they're in the tribulation. And he's telling them, of course, no, it cannot happen until the rapture of the church. So let me just read very quickly concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him. Gathered to Him. That would be the rapture as opposed to Him coming back and being with them. We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, some report, or some letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. That would be, of course, the tribulation and the events following. And don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be to be God. And of course, that is an event that will occur and is described in the book of the Revelation as well as in the book of Matthew. It's the abomination of the desolation mentioned by our, by our Lord Jesus. He, then he, of uh, course, uh, a pastor's lamentation, if you will. Do you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? In other words, I formally told you these things. And now ye know what withholdeth. And I underlined what withholdeth because that's the rapture of the church that lives in every believer. And when the believer is raptured, there goes the Holy Spirit. And now the Holy Spirit will operate like he used to do in a Jewish age or in several Jewish uh, uh, books of the Bible so mentioned. Uh, so let me read that again. And now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. You and I are the ones who withhold because the Holy Spirit lives in each of us. Then he goes on to say, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. We see it today in the United Nations. And all the provisions about being a global uh, country. Uh, It's at work. UNICEF is at work. The UN is at work, etc. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. That's when you and I leave at the rapture. And then the lawless one, the Antichrist, will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives these who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. For this reason, God sends them, sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. Alright, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through Belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we pass on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us 
and by His grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and work. All right, now under the heading, Grace Before Judgment. Throughout the tribulation, the gospel will be proclaimed. The world will be evangelized. There will be many believers, as the book of the Revelation says. There will be many believers coming out from the tribulation. Uh, So many, says the scripture, that you can't even count the nations, much less the number of believers. And there are some miraculous ways that the gospel is spread, not only through personal evangelism as well as other evangelical efforts, organized evangelism. But notice, by the 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are saved following the rapture of the church, Revelation chapter 7, verse 4, by the two witnesses, Moses and Elijah, Revelation 11, 3 through 6, by angels, Revelation 14, 6 through 7, and then a large bird, Revelation 8, 13. So we have it as a very unusual age, and as I have said before, though I don't want to go through the tribulation period, it would be interesting to be able to see it, and we will get to see it because we will have been raptured and we will be, of course, in the new Jerusalem in heaven. But uh, very unusual uh, evangelical work, as you can see. Now let's go to the heading, The Unholy Trinity. There are many passages that describe the maneuvers of the various kings of the tribulation. Alright, for example, the four kings, they are the king of the north, king of the west, king of the south, and king of the east. They will one day arrive in the valley of death, or the valley of Jezreel, or that we call Megiddo, to destroy first Israel, and then defeat Christ, when he returns at his second advent. Gabriel had early brought a warning to Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, verses 13 through 14. You remember uh, Gabriel arrived to answer some questions of Daniel who had prayed, and he had a problem getting there because of a demon that was on the shoulder of the king of Persia who stopped him, and he had to call for Michael, and Michael came and and, uh, permitted him to come by uh, taking on, of course, the, the the demon who was assigned to the king of Persia. All right, during the church age, Satan's power on earth is also re- restrained by the ministry of God the Holy Spirit that men often forget the power, and ex- often they do, and the existence of demons. However, during the tribulation, Satan will be free to wreak havoc and without strength, says Isaiah fourteen thirteen through 14. You remember that passage beginning in chapter 12, reading uh, through 14. is very popular and one we use quite so often when Satan says, I will be like God. All right, now let's go on. The culmination of Satan's attempts to be worshipped as God is revealed by the power he gives the man of lawlessness. It is written that the king of the West, as Satan's man, takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Satan's man there, of course, is the Antichrist. All right, the seed of rebellion planted in the garden will bear bitter fruit, for in the tribulation, both Satan and the beast are worshipped instead of God. The 13th chapter of the book of Revelation describes both the Antichrist and the false prophet. And we'll see, of course, on page 6, super page 6, much about those 
folks in chapter 13. Chapter 13 gives us a description of the Antichrist, and then it gives you a description of the false prophet. And I'm going to read you an expanded translation uh, shortly. All right, from the first pernicious innuendo of the garden until this very hour, Satan denies that a just and righteous God has taken care of the sin problem. Sin is no longer an issue. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The devil has succeeded, however, in blinding men's minds that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who certainly is the image of God himself. 2 Corinthians 4.4, compared with 2 Corinthians 3.14-16, through 16, is appropriate. Now let me read first 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now notice 2 Corinthians 3, 14, reading through 16. But their minds were made dull. It's talking particularly about Israel here. For to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant, Old Testament, is read. It has not been removed. Because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But notice, here is hope. There's always hope with the Lord. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Alright, the simplicity of believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved is obscured by endless systems of works and religion, though through which man, of course, will seek to be saved, uh, both then and now. Now notice, of course, we know the their famous verse in Acts 16.31, uh, where it says, They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. In the, the, the second missionary journey, where Paul and Silas were in prison, and it said, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. In other words, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house, says the scripture in the KJV. And then, of course, you have to read on to understand they then went to his house and witnessed to the folks, his family, and also probably to his servants, and they all believed on the Lord Jesus. All right, now let's look at the, the description found in Revelation chapter 13. And we're going to first of all look at the beast out of the sea. That would tend to indicate he's a, a, a Gentile. I'm going to read you an expanded translation now. So uh, here up. The devil looked out on planet Earth's swirling mass of humanity. He viewed the confusion of the Gentile world as opportunity. Then I saw the Antichrist arise out from the confused skein of the nations. There was a ten-nation federation ruling Europe. It was from one of the smallest of the ten that the Antichrist arose to power. Soon he took over two other nations, and then finally he became ruler of all ten. Each of the ten national leaders served as blasphemous heads of state in open opposition to God. Verse 12, John was impressed with the appearance of the Antichrist. He resembled a leopard, with feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. He saw a dragon who seemed to be behind the scene leading the respective kings. The dragon was Satan. 
He gave the beast his power, a throne, and great authority. The animals symbolize three of the four major Gentile empires of time past, of which we have studied. The leopard, Alexander the Great. The bear, the Medo-Persians. And the lion, Babylon. A fourth was an empire yet to come, one whose rise was imminent but not yet revealed. The fourth would be a revived Roman Empire soon to come. John was amazed at what had been revealed to him. He would be even more amazed at what would be next revealed. He saw the Antichrist sustain a fatal wound, but was remarkably resuscitated. The whole world was astonished and followed the beast as their political and spiritual leader. Verse 4, most of the world, though unaware, were worshiping Satan. Satan was indwelt by the Antichrist and gave him his authority and power. This power concluded, included a strong military presence. Those who worshipped the new world leader were absolutely devoted and impressed. They in fact asked, who is like the Antichrist? Who can make war against him? The Antichrist was also given great wisdom to effectively blaspheme God. He ruled the world as a despot. Verse 6 now. But the Antichrist and his sidekick, the false prophet, took great pleasure in squandering, or excuse me, slandering the name of God and his word. Jews were ridiculed and Christians were considered a lunatic fringe. The word of God was said to be an opiate for the downtrodden. Now the Antichrist, verse 7, in the last half of the tribulation was given power to make war against all Jews and Christians. All of this was done under the permissive will of God. God permitted the rise of the Antichrist in order to set him up for his grand humiliation prophesied in the 28th chapter of the book of Ezekiel. The nations of the world, verse 8, and all their unbelieving citizens were openly worshiping the Antichrist as God. That is to say, all those whose names had been removed from the book of life belonging to the Lamb of God. Verse 9, believers of all ages are heard to pay attention to that which is said in this apocalypse. Now then, verse 10, if you live in the tribulation, God forbid, you are going to be incarcerated for the cause of Christ. Do not miss the rapture. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ right now. Many believers living in the tribulation will be executed. This age will call for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints of God. But at the end of the seven years, the saints of God will be vindicated. All of this chaos makes becoming a believer the way to go now. Alright, the beast out of the earth. We'll go to the false prophet now, which is covered in, again, the 13th chapter, verses 11 through 18. Alright, verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth, a Jew. He was a Jew. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. The two horns were symbolic of his ambivalent nature. He was at first sweet as sugar, but later took on the nature of the meanest junkyard dog ever. Alright, he was given power and authority to speak and to act on behalf of the Antichrist. In fact, he made certain the earth and its inhabitants worship the Antichrist. 
the same world leader whose fatal wound had been healed. Again, a head wound to the Antichrist. And you remember they laid him out and he rose from the dead. All right, the second beast is called the false prophet. He will be a world religious leader who performs miraculous signs and wonders, even causing fire to streak across the heavens and then on command the fire would fall to earth. All right, verse 14, it is because of the many miracles performed by this second beast that he and the Antichrist will be able to deceive the inhabitants of the earth. All right, now back to some of our summary points. He receives his power from the indwelt Antichrist, that is the false prophet, and makes no bones about the source. Consequently, he orders the leaders of Israel to set up an image in honor of the Antichrist. Those living on planet Earth had earlier been impressed because of the recovery of the Antichrist from the terrible head wound. His resuscitation to life was just the sign many needed to accept the allegation that the Antichrist was the incarnate Messiah and the false prophet, the reincarnated Elijah. The false prophet was permitted to put the breath of life into the statue of the Antichrist. Thus he spoke and many were amazed. The image had been set up in the Erzatz temple. This took place in the middle of the tribulation. Everyone who refused to worship the image of the first beast was put to death. To believers who know the word of God, the erection of the abomination of desolation is the signal to flee south to the mountains of Idumea, where they are to remain for the next three and one half years. Now let's go to verse 15. The false prophet was permitted to put the breath of life into the statue of the Antichrist. Thus he spoke and many were amazed. The image had been set up in the Erzatz temple, not the real one, but the Erzatz. This took place in the middle of the tribulation. Everyone who refused to worship the image of the first beast was put to death. All people were forced to receive a mark on their hand or on their forehead in order to transact business. An underground economy had to be established to feed the many believers. It did not matter how powerful or how wealthy you might be, without the mark you could not buy or sell. To transact business, you had to have the mark. The mark stood for the name of the first beast and for the number of his name. Here is wisdom. The the wise man will understand and learn from the number assigned to the Antichrist. 666. The entire book of the Revelation is a portrait of a man, thus imperfect number, without God in control and having power provided by Satan himself. All right, resuming now summary points so much for the unholy treaty. By producing great signs and miracles through the power of Satan, the dictator of Palestine is able to sustain the claims of deity by directing worship toward himself. Thus, these two beasts, as earthly rulers, use and encourage unprecedented demon activity, wars, cataclysms, and pestilence. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, the frog demons. For centuries, demon has, demons and have operated undercover. But in the tribulation, they assume major roles and their activities become highly visible. 
These demons are said to be, excuse me, <clears throat> are said to be like frogs. The croaking noise of the frog is used here as an analogy to the boastful promises of these future tyrants. The summit talks which precede the alliance between the demon-possessed beast and the false prophet are actually the brilliant strategies of demons motivating mankind. These demons also provide the power for the dictators to perform pseudo-miracles which are designed to captivate people. The less people think Bible doctrine, the more they are deluded by the performance of signs or the performing signs. In the tribulation, Satan utilizes every means possible to assemble the armies of the world to do battle against God. All right, Revelation 16, 13, and then we'll read verse 14. Then I saw three demons that looked very much like frogs. They came out of the mouth of Satan, out of the mouth of the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They performed miraculous signs and wonders before the kings of the earth. By demonic control and possession, the leaders of the world were persuaded to send their armies into the valley of Jezreel near Megiddo to await the battle to end all battles. Now let's take a look at the campaigns of Armageddon. Just as God has used invading armies to punish disobedient Israel in the past, so the king of the north appears during the tribulation to ravage the land and destroy its people. But his invasion of Israel assures his own destruction. Daniel writes of the campaign in great detail. Let's begin with Daniel chapter 11 verse 37. It says the Antichrist in the last half of the tribulation will openly flaunt his hatred of both true and apostate religion. This impressive world leader will ridicule the hope of a coming Messiah he will finally declare himself to be the Jewish Messiah. Now, early in his ministry, he will glorify raw power, placing his trust in military might, wealth, and international power. The Antichrist will reward his military commanders with gifts of gold, silver, and precious stones. He will be unparalleled as a world leader, infatuated with military might. Initially, he will attack and defeat those nations that do not submit to his program of world domination. With the help of the false prophet, he will procure favor from the Jews and the land. He will initially aid and protect them. In fact, all who support his rise to power will be promoted and rewarded. Now, in the middle of the tribulation, a pan-Arabic coalition led by Egypt will break the peace established by the Antichrist. Point or two. These Arab nations are led by a man called elsewhere in Scripture, the King of the South. By his military might, he will attempt to take over Israel. With mechanized inventory, excuse me, infantry, he will start to move his forces overland through Gaza and into Israel. This political and Military indiscretion on his part will precipitate a response from the Soviet Union. The leader of the Soviet forces is called elsewhere in Scripture, 
the king of the north. The king of the north will storm out against the Pan-Arabic coalition with infantry, armor, air, and sea power. From the Bosphorus will come a naval force, and from the area west of the Caspian Sea will come a large contingent of armor and infantry with tactical fighter support. Now verse 41, Daniel 11. The king of the north will also invade Israel on his way south in blitzkrieg fashion. He will leave carnage and destruction in his wake. Eastern Turkey, Syria, and Lebanon will fall. Those countries east of Israel like Jordan and the Persian Gulf nations will be spared. The Russian forces seem intent on staying close to the Mediterranean shoreline, thus permitting maximum support from their naval armada. The forces of Russia will be very quickly, or will very quickly, drive the army of the king of the south into Egypt. The Soviets will gain control of Egypt and her North African allies, not just defeating them, but taking all of their wealth as earned plunder. The Pan-Arabic bloc will be annihilated and their military embarrassed. Verse 44 again in Daniel 11. While the king of the north is mopping up in the south, he receives an alarming report. Air reconnaissance indicates a large armada of Asians is moving across the Euphrates, heading toward Israel. Naval intelligence indicates a large naval armada under the flag of the European Union has left Italy, rapidly moving east forward toward Israel. Military intelligence reports the Antichrist commands this EU fleet. This demands quick action on the part of the King of the North. He orders his entire army out of North Africa and back into Israel. He also orders his naval forces to move northward. They are engaged, eager in fact, to engage the EU's fleet and determine their intentions. Now verse 45. The Russian ground forces will return through Egypt, across Gaza, and into Israel. They will meet token resistance from the remaining Israeli defense forces. The IDF will retreat in the direction of Jerusalem. Their plan will be to defend the holy city or die. After securing all the surrounding countryside, the king of the north will establish his command post just west of Jerusalem near Megiddo. It is there the Soviets will plan to meet the Asian forces and the European Union expeditionary force just north of Jerusalem. The Antichrist will come ashore to meet with the king of the north, king of the south, and the leader of the Asian armies using his Satan-supplied gift. The Antichrist will negotiate a settlement. Plans will be made to attack the city of Jerusalem and destroy God's remnant. The plan is soon executed and the small IDF is driven back into the temple area where they await their expected destruction. Suddenly, a vast darkness will cover the land and the last battle of Armageddon will begin. All right, the Lord Jesus Christ with his angelic army will descend from the heavens. With a fury, Christ will destroy the armies of the world and the remnant of Israel will be delivered. 
Clearly, I believe it is absolutely necessary that we feature what is going on in Jerusalem. Let's talk a little bit about the siege of Jerusalem. In the history of Jerusalem, there have been many sieges of the holy city. Prominent among them is the fall of Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. and to Rome in A.D. 70. Yet to come is the siege at the end of the tribulation, which is a part of the Armageddon campaign. Joel chapter 2 describes the powerful armies gathered to destroy Israel. And I'll read Joel chapter 2 verse 1, reading through verse 9. You'll get a description of just how ferocious we have. Alright, blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor ever will be, will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry, with a noise like that of chariots. They leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire, consuming a stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, the nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each march straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. And now let's talk about the Lord's victory. The last battles of Armageddon campaign occur in the closing days of the tribulation prior to the premillennial return of Christ thus fulfilling the promises of four unconditional covenants, which we have studied, as you well know, the Palestinian, the Davidic, uh, of course, the, and, of course, eventually the New Covenant. All are, of course, wonderful conditional covenants, including the Davidic covenant that tell us about David. All right, now let's go to Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 through 9, and Zechariah 14, 1 through 5, to describe the victory of the Lord over the Antichrist forces. Here we go, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 12. I was then told to declare a special message. This is the word of the Lord for Israel. I am the I am who created from absolutely nothing the heavens and the earth. It was I who stretched out the heavens and then laid the foundation for the earth. After creating a perfect heaven and earth, it was spoiled by the incompetent Satan. I chose to resort, restore things, form man from the dust of the ground, and breathe life into the first Adam. Now you should know just who it is that is speaking to you. I myself will make Jerusalem a goblet of intoxication for all the greedy nations who arrive to spill the blood of the inhabitants of the city. And likewise shall it be concerning all of Judah. So just before the second advent of the Lord, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against Israel at Jerusalem, I will make that city a large, immovable rock 
And all who try to lift it will be injured. And I can just see some weightlifters I've seen before who try so hard to lift that weight and they get injured with the hernia. All right, no offense there, Kim. All right, now, (laughs) Judah too will be a cup of reeling for those who come to the Valley of Jezreel. Both Judah and Jerusalem will be used as bait to draw the nations to a single geographical area where they will be easy prey for the returning Messiah and His heavenly army. Within 24 hours of the return of Christ, God will cause absolute panic in the battle lines of Israel's forces and foes. Foes, excuse me. God will impose a total darkness over the battlefield. All lines of communication will cease. There will be no command and control. The God of Israel will provide a supernatural protection over the house of Judah. The forces of the nations will come to a screeching halt. When the Lord returns, all of Judah will say, The people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is again their God. After the Lord of the armies has established peace in the land, he will make the leaders of Judah militarily superior. They can best be described as a flaming torch among sheaves. They will rule all the nations surrounding Judah and the city of Jerusalem will stand as the world's capital. At the return of the Lord, he will deliver all of the northern kingdom. Uh, first, that is to say before he delivers Judah and Jerusalem. This in order that there be no jealousy stimulated between north, that is the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom, Judah versus, of course, Israel. And, of course, the Lord Jesus says one of the things, which I, there's some things you have to leave out, of course. But one of the things that he does is he makes his way down to Edom. And uh, there was uh, Edomites who rebelled in the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in 606. In 597 and 586, they fought on the side of Nebuchadnezzar. So the Lord owes them something. So the scripture tells us that he goes down into Edom. And uh, one of the more striking revelations is that uh, he's seen returning. And he has blood all over his, his uh, quote, uniform, close quote. And they ask him, where have you been, Lord? He said, I went back to pay the Edomites. And indeed, uh, he he did, uh, or he will do. So, so much then for our study of uh, what happens in the battle of Armageddon, battles, plural, of Armageddon. We usually think of the battle of Armageddon. It's actually the battles of Armageddon, since there are more than one. So we have covered then uh, much of the tribulation, and uh, we'll see what happens next. We've still got the millennium to go, and then we've got the new Jerusalem to go. And that we will do before we end our study of the doctrine of disputations, or dispensations, excuse me, (laughs) disputations, dispensations. So David, we appreciate you putting all this on on our website as well as on our podcast. Now we're going to devote the closing moments of the service to anyone who may be without Christ, without hope, and without eternal life. Uh, God... uh, had you personally in mind, frankly, when he went to the cross, everyone who has not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ are the subject now of our invitation. And it's important for you to understand that I'm not going to be able up here to provide anything that will convince anybody to do something. 
but I know what will, and that is the Word of God itself. So with your head bowed, please, and your eyes closed, uh, you pray that the Word of God would have the effect that God would have for it to have. And of course, we know that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is faith alone in Christ alone. Said over and over again, since we are all sinners, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So you know Christ came, and he actually came unto his own, Israel, but his own received him not. But as many as did receive him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on his name. So right where you are, whatever you might be doing, you can tell God the Father, I am believing on God the Son, and on the promise of the Word, you will be saved. There are so many scriptures that tell us just how simple it is, and who does it all. And of course, that is our Father, our Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who then reveals all things to us as they relate to salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith in that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent his Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. He that does not believe on the Son has not everlasting life. So right where you are, take care of the problem right now. The problem is sin. The answer is Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ on the cross who took care of all the sins of the world. So let me recommend you believe at this very moment. Who knows how many more moments we'll have. No one knows except God. So I'm going to pause for just a moment and give opportunity to anyone who is without Christ, without hope and without eternal life to take care of the problem. And then I'm going to pronounce our benediction. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and to to worship. So, uh, thank you. And I would ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented this morning, make it real, in order that we might become more like our Lord and our Savior, even Jesus the Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.